The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Being too young to have grown up in the 60s, uh, I don't have the same range of bad taste clothes that Professor Edgar has. Um, So I had to make two with my tie, which, as you can see, has an American icon on it, John Wayne in Hondo, though I still think The Searchers, not only is that John Wayne's best film, but it's possibly the best film ever made. Let us turn to God's words, the first chapter of Paul's letter to Timothy, first letter to Timothy. And we'll read verses 1 to 11 together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The relevance of that passage, I hope, will will appear towards the end of what I have to say. Uh, My brief is to talk about, I suppose, the events of this day, October the 31st, 1517. For those of you who've been in my Reformation class, this will be old news. You're going to have to bear with me for a few minutes while we just recap the background to the events of 1517. First thing you need to know, however, is that the Reformation really doesn't start on October the 31st, 1517. Or if it starts, it starts entirely by accident. Martin Luther had no intention, it seems to me, of the kind of church-splitting reformation that happens uh, in the years after 1517 when he nailed his 95 theses to the chapel door in Wittenberg. And incidentally, like most events in history... Once they've been around long enough, historians do start to doubt that they actually happened, and there are people who think that Luther may never actually have nailed his 95 theses to the castle door. The way that leads to the Reformation is somewhat akin to... It's a a, a wonderfully dramatic uh, statement that Karl Barth, the uh, Swiss theologian, 
makes about the impact of his commentary on Romans. Those of you who know anything about 20th century theology will know that Karl Barth's commentary on Romans caused a dramatic change around in the direction of 20th century theology. I'm always interested by Barth's uh, book on Romans. Yes, it's an exciting read. Always slightly confused that he chose to name it after a book by Paul, if I could put it that way, as it's not conventional exegesis in any, in any stretch of the imagination. But Barth says this about uh, his letter, the commentary on the letter to Romans. He said, It was as if I was walking along and stumbling in the dark, and I tripped up, and in order to stop myself falling, I thrust my hands out in front of me, and I seized hold of a rope, and I pulled on it to stop myself falling. And high above me, I heard a church bell ringing. It's always struck me that's a wonderfully dramatic image that Bart writes this book, and it creates an explosion that he never anticipated. And I think that applies to Martin Luther in 1517. It was inconceivable for somebody of Luther's generation that the church would split. One of the most difficult things, I think, for us today as we address the Reformation is church splits are so routine for us. It is almost impossible for us to understand the trauma that the church split in the 16th century would have caused culturally and intellectually to those who went through it. And we must remember that Luther did not intend this split when he nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. So what was Luther doing if he was not intending a kind of church-splitting reformation? What was he doing? Well, on one level, he was simply advertising a debate. There was a debate here last night. There are posters up around the campus that advertise that debate, told you the topic of the debate, who was going to be speaking. When Luther nails the 95 Theses to the castle door in Wittenberg, he is advertising a debate. In some ways, there is nothing more dramatic or significant in the intention than that. He's sticking up something on the town notice board to let people know what's going to happen. Second aspect of it, of course, is the immediate historical background. Without going into all the detail, essentially what's happened is one of the local bishops has decided he wants to buy another bishopric. And in order to do that, he's already got two. In order to buy a third bishopric, he needs to get a license from the Pope to do it. So he pays the Pope a considerable sum of money. The Pope himself is rather hard up for cash. He's been waging wars. He's had had St. Peter's built. Michelangelo is the, the man who's painted the inside of it. Doesn't come cheap. The Pope is in financial difficulties. Albrecht, this local archbishop, wishes to add another bishopric to his collection pays the Pope in order to get permission to add this extra bishopric, does so by borrowing money from the banks. And the Pope, as the sort of the, one might say, a kind of bailout package for Albrecht, if you like, allows Albrecht to raise an indulgence on his territory, allows Albrecht to have an indulgence sold on his territory where some of the proceeds will go towards paying off the interest on the loan, Some of it will go towards uh, paying the Pope. So everybody's a winner, if you like. Albrecht gets the extra tax-raising powers from having an extra bishopric. The Pope gets paid and the bank gets paid. An indulgence is simply a piece of paper. Simply a piece of paper that says, if you paid this sum of money, then you or one of your departed loved ones is granted a certain amount of time off purgatory. 
you, you know, somebody comes into your village and they're selling indulgences and they say, you remember, you remember Uncle Joe the plumber, let's say. He was a great plumber. He was a great foil. He'd been a farmhand. There was really no... Plumbing was not a pleasant... It's not a pleasant business today. It was even less pleasant, I suspect, in the 16th century. Joe the farmhand. Uncle Joe the farmhand. Lovely guy. Died. And he was a decent, decent bloke, as we would say in England, but he's languishing, you know, 100,000 years in purgatory. It's a long time. But if you buy one of these pieces of paper, we can probably get 10,000 of those years set aside. It's a long time. You can buy an indulgence, and you can start to deal with this problem. The interesting thing, two interesting things that occur in Luther's relation to this is, one, Luther doesn't object to the selling of indulgences, really. That's not Luther's primary problem. Luther believes in purgatory at this point. He believes in indulgences. His problem is not indulgences. We know that. For the second interesting thing about Luther, Tetzel, the man charged with selling these indulgences in Germany, can never do it in Wittenberg. And he's not allowed to do it in Wittenberg because Frederick the Wise, the elector of Wittenberg, the man in charge, he has his own little trade in indulgences and relics going on. So Luther does not object to indulgences per se. And Tetzel doesn't come into Luther's parish selling these things. So why does Luther get involved? Two reasons. One, people cross over the river. They cross over the river into Ducal Saxony, where these things are being sold. Luther's own parishioners are affected by that. It's like today. I mean, you might might tell the people in your church till you're blue in the face that... Going to Benny Hinn is a pointless exercise. Don't give your money to Benny Hinn. It's pointless to go there. It's a false gospel. It's rubbish. But if somebody in your congregation is desperate, desperately ill, and Benny Hinn's down at the Wachovia Center in Philadelphia, chances are they might at least feel the temptation to go and hear him. So Luther gets involved because his people are crossing the river and buying indulgences. So it becomes a pastoral problem for Luther. What does Luther object to in the buying and selling of indulgences? If he still believes in purgatory and he still believes that there can be such a thing as an indulgence, what he objects to is this, that God's grace is being traded as a commodity on the open market. Luther is convinced by 1517 that sin is so serious that it can only be dealt with by the death of God himself incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the way that human beings come to grasp that grace is through total humility. Throwing themselves absolutely on the mercy of God. I don't think Luther has quite got justification by faith by 1517. I think that comes more in 1518, 1519, 1520. In 1517, it is humility. It is making yourself nothing before God. But you see then what the problem is with Luther and a man like Tetzel who will say, every time a coin in the copper rings, a soul from purgatory springs, or will say to you, even if you have raped the Virgin Mary, you can buy one of my indulgences and square the sin away. Luther's problem with that is, it's cheapened the grace of God. It has turned the grace of Christ into something that can be bought and sold on the open market without it really having an impact on the human heart without you really dying and rising again with Christ. That is the problem for Luther in 1517. 
It is formally separable in many ways from justification by faith. Praise the Lord, Luther's theology continues to develop. But the problem for Luther, the real issue on October the 31st, 1517, is his parishioners are being tricked into thinking they can buy the grace of God. They're being tricked into thinking they can buy the grace of God and others are peddling the grace of God for profit. And I just want to, as we're closing here today, I want to reflect on two or three ways that that might affect us in this room today. First of all, there's the obvious one. I've already alluded to it. Tele-evangelists. If you say, well, Protestants don't sell indulgences. Of course we do. Switch on your television. Tune into the Christian channel. Notice, you know, that credit card number that flicks across the bottom of the screen. Think about who the people are who are phoning in and giving money to those programs. These people are living high on the hog on the basis of the poorest and the most vulnerable people in society being preyed on in terms of their deepest fears and their greatest areas of vulnerability. It's exactly what it was like in Luther's day. It is not the intelligentsia who are crossing the river to buy indulgences. It is the poor people. Those of you who have seen the recent Luther movie, there is that wonderful scene where Luther meets the young girl with a baby strapped to her back. You know, and she's not got enough money to clothe herself properly or to clothe the child properly, but she's got this piece of paper that she's used all of the money for food or whatever it was to buy. She's been preyed on by the ruthless. That is what Luther is objecting to, and it goes on today. But the second thing, the second area, and this, I think, is where perhaps we feel the pinch. And that's why I read 1 Timothy, the chapter in 1 Timothy. The people that Tetzel is picking on are not the only people damaged by Tetzel's sale in indulgences. Tetzel himself is damaged by the sale in indulgences. Tetzel is using the grace of God as a means of making himself a wealthy and significant person in the society in which he lives. And that, I think, is where the pinch comes for us. And I want to just throw out some uh, questions to you today and then recommend a book for you to read. What is your motivation in studying at Westminster? Is it to get knowledge so that you can become a teacher? Because that's the problem with the people that Timothy is zeroing in on, or Paul is zeroing in on, in the first chapter of 1 Timothy. The problem with these people is they desire to be teachers. The focus, if you like, is on them and their accomplishments. Their desire is not to be mere instruments or vessels through which the grace of God is taught. Their desire is to be teachers. And we live in a day and age where you only have to switch on the internet. You only have to see some of the people out there on the blogs. What are they doing? Their desire is to have power and influence. Ultimately, the arguments are almost incidental. The real desire is to make a name for themselves. And that is what's driving Tetzel. Those people, too, are modern-day Tetzels. Those of you who are going to be facing calls to churches in the next few years, what is your criteria for thinking of a church that's going to call you? Is it a big church or a church with a name? Praise the Lord if you're called to one of those. But is that what you're looking for? You want to be the pastor of the big church, not the pastor of the small church that nobody's ever heard of. 
talking uh, to one of the local pastors and asking, uh, how do you cope with Westminster professors in your congregation? And he said, Westminster professors are no problem at all. One, there's very little chance of leading them astray, which is a good, good point, I thought. But secondly, secondly, he said, the people who are real problems are the people who studied at Westminster and never got the recognition they deserve. And they're now in the congregations trying to stir it up and have influence and power because ultimately they're not interested in the extension of the kingdom. They're interested in the extension of their own kingdom. So that, again, is a temptation for us. Thirdly, political and cultural influence. It's very interesting how Christian magazines have slowly but surely come to look as glossy as mainstream magazines. George Orwell in the 1930s, and I've quoted him many times at this point, in the 1930s, George Orwell says, it's amazing, when I read American magazines, there are no ugly people there. I wonder, if you look at Christian magazines these days, how many ugly people feature in Christian magazines. It's boring when the ordinary guy gets converted. It's spectacular when the celebrity gets converted. Why? Why? Is it that we have become interested in cultural and political power and influence? Is it that we are mesmerized and dazzled by that? Is it that we have lost our true kingdom priorities? And that brings me to the book I want to mention to you. It is one of the most moving books that I've read in the last year. It's by D.A. Carson, and it's entitled Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. And it's a book in some ways that only a son could write about his father. It's, you know, it's a beautiful book from that perspective. But the great thing about this book is his father was a totally boring and ordinary person. But it is a remarkable story of God's grace and a remarkable story of a man who worked away. You know, you're turning the page and thinking, well, when is the spectacular revival going to come? When is the church suddenly going to grow? When is this man suddenly going to become important? He doesn't. He doesn't. And that is life. But Don Carson's father was as great a soldier for the kingdom and as significant in the extension of the kingdom as anyone has ever been. Not only was he Don Carson's father, but he's more, he's more than his son's father. And I would recommend that you go, as soon as the bookstore opens today, go and buy a copy of that book and read it. Because I suspect that gives you a picture not only of what life will be like for you, but in some ways of what life should be like. Let us close in prayer. Oh Lord God, we praise you, for you are a great and a mighty God. We praise you for the great acts of your providence, for your mighty saving deeds in history. We praise you, Lord, for the spectacular way you will bring history to its conclusion. But we also thank you, Lord, that you are a God who looks on the weak and the humble, a God who numbers the very hairs on the head of the least of your saints. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would forgive us for those times and occasions when we have used your gospel and your grace as a way to enhance our own profits, whether financial or simply in terms of reputation and influence. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would forgive us for that, that your Holy Spirit would work within us true gospel humility, and you would make us, Lord, better servants for your kingdom than we have been thus far. We pray these things, Lord, not confident in our own ability to achieve these things, 
but confidence in you who can do all things. Amen.